The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad you're with us this morning. I wonder, as we get started, have you ever had a prayer that you gave up on? Maybe a person, maybe a person in your life, maybe somebody that you care about that, that, that you gave up praying for because you just became convinced there was no hope. You just became convinced that, that, that God wasn't going to move you. Maybe you just became convinced they're too far gone. Anybody that, that's ever had somebody in your life that you cared about, that you wanted to see God move in their life, God bring some kind of healing, some kind of freedom, some kind of liberation from addiction, from, from illness, from, from oppression, for, for somebody to, to come to know Jesus and experience salvation through him, and you just... Gave up. I know that I have. And yet, we're going to look at a story this morning that is going to challenge all of us and, and I hope encourage all of us. That as we look at this story, that we are reminded that if the man in this story who has an encounter with Jesus is not too far gone, then friends, nobody is too far gone. We are in the third week of a series called One Life at a Time, where we're talking about the, the reality that this, this movement that Jesus came to bring, this, this movement that has been going now for all these centuries, this movement that has now gone global and encompasses a third of the world's population that identify themselves as Christian, that, that this movement that Jesus came to bring, that he's invited us into, began and has gone forward down through the centuries and continues to go forward today, One Life at a time. And the challenge for each and every one of us then is to say, God, who is it in my life that you would call me this year to, to, to focus on, to, to commit to pray for and to invest in, to see some kind of gospel transformation take place in that person's life? We began the first week just with that challenge. Who is it that we're going to commit to bring to Jesus in prayer? If you weren't here for week one, I would really encourage you to go back. I think what we did that first week in some ways sets the agenda for what God has for us as a church for the remainder of the year. Last week, we talked about seeing people the way that Jesus sees people. We saw in the way in which he encountered a woman and he was moved with compassion and that God would make us people who see people the way that Jesus did and are moved with compassion to move toward them. And this week, we're going to look at a story that I got to just tell you right up front. This is a weird story. Are we allowed to say that about the Bible? Are we allowed to confess that reality? This is just, it's a strange story. And, and frankly, there are kind of two responses to a story like this. For some of us, we're so familiar with the stories of the Bible that they've ceased to be strange. And we need to be reminded of the reality, the way in which our neighbors would hear a story like this. And that maybe for us, if we become too familiar with the strange stories of the Bible, maybe we need to encounter their oddity to see in that oddity something it's new and fresh and, and deeper for us. And yet there are others who are here this morning for whom this isn't a familiar story at all. And, and you've got perhaps a healthy dose of, dose of skepticism and you hear a story like this and you go, that's weird. You, you expect me to believe that? 
And so I think it's important for us just to acknowledge right up front, this is a strange story, it's a weird story, and yet there's something really powerful in this story, perhaps precisely in its oddity for us. And so my hope is that all of us will open ourselves up to the oddity of this story and allow it to speak to us, to, to enter into the world of this story and to see what it has to say for you, what it has to say for us. It's a story that's told in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. And so if you have a Bible, you have it on your device, you have your IBC mobile app, you can open up to Mark chapter 5. Now before we dive into the story, it's important to remember Mark's Gospel is written to a particular audience at a particular time. Mark is telling his story of the life of Jesus for the early church in Rome who is suffering persecution. And anytime you read Mark's gospel, you, you kind of have that audience in mind. You think about how would this have sent? What would have the resonances have been for the first hearers of this story? So I want you to have that in the back of your mind. This story is written for a suffering, struggling church in Rome under the thumb of the empire, experiencing persecution. And the story is a story of the, the power of Jesus and his concern for one man. Look with me at the story as we dive in, chapter 5 of Mark, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And Jesus got out of the boat, and a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and he broke the irons with his feet. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. I told you it's an odd story, right? Now, before we talk about this man that Jesus encounters, let's talk about Jesus himself. Because as readers of this story, we're supposed to be asking, Jesus, what are you doing here? Right, Jesus, is, we're told, crosses over to the other side of the lake. The side of the lake that Jesus is accustomed to is the Jewish side of the lake. Now, Jesus has crossed the lake into Gentile territory. He is crossing the, the religiously and ethnically imposed boundaries, the culturally imposed boundaries of his day by going to the other side of the lake. And we're supposed to, as readers, go, Jesus, what are you doing there? If we had a little red flag when we're reading through the story, there's multiple points where we ought to be waving our flag, right? Jesus goes to an unclean region, red flag, filled with unclean people, red flag, encounters an unclean man, red flag, with an unclean spirit, red flag, who lives in a graveyard, unclean graveyard, red flag, filled with unclean corpses, red flag. We're supposed to go, Jesus, what are you doing there? We don't go to places like that, Jesus. We don't, we don't spend time with people like that, Jesus. And isn't it good to know that Jesus does go to places like that? That Jesus does spend time with people like that? That Jesus crosses the lake? That our God is the God who crosses to the other side? And Jesus goes to the other side to be with this one man to have this encounter with him. Jesus has gone to the other side of the lake. And so he's entered into this place surrounded by these people that is unclean, 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 unclean. And we're told this man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. 
Now again, here we say, hold on a second, an impure spirit? Some of you are going, really? A demon? And part of the reason that we sort of have that response is that we live in a world that is what um, a philosopher Charles Taylor has called a disenchanted world. A world in which we think that uh, we have come to a place of having scientific explanations for, for everything so that if we can't see it, hear it, taste it, touch it, smell it, or test it in a lab, it doesn't exist. A disenchanted world, and we like the world that way because that kind of world is neat and clean and predictable. And yet the human experience isn't always neat and clean and predictable. And the world of the Bible isn't a disenchanted world. The world of the Bible, the story of the Bible, is a story of cosmic conflict. That in this story of cosmic conflict, there is a will at work in the world that seeks to undermine God's good intention at every turn. And you take that out of the story, you take that out of reality, and you're left with inadequate explanations of the reality of evil and suffering that we experience in the world. Purely naturalistic expectations explanations for evil and suffering don't do justice to what we actually experience in this world. That the story of the Bible is a story of cosmic conflict. They will at work in the world that seeks to undermine God's good intention at every turn. And, and there are cosmic forces. There are, there are impure spirits who are at work seeking to undermine God's good intention. Now, years ago, C.S. Lewis observed that, that the, the enemy really has two very common strategies that he employs. One is to convince the world that he doesn't exist, and second is to convince the world that he's everywhere, behind every rock. And that each of these are, in fact, an error, that, that, that we ought not become so convinced that, that the idea of devils is just sort of an old, antiquated idea from a world gone by, or to see demons behind every rock, but recognize rather there is cosmic conflict that we find ourselves caught up in. And here is a man who's become a victim of this cosmic conflict. And we're supposed to see this description and, and, and grieve for the way in which this cosmic conflict has been dehumanizing for this man. Look, look at what it says about him. This man with an impure spirit came from the tombs, and so he's living in the tombs, and, and we might imagine a, a graveyard with tombstones, but we need to think about what that would have looked like in the first century world, that he lives on a hillside that's got caves built in the hills, because in that day, that when a person died, they would take them out and lay them in a cave, and their body would decompose. Then they would come back at a time later, go back into the cave, and take the bones and put them in an ossuary, a bone box. So here's a man who lives in the caves surrounded by corpses. And we're told that, he, uh, that, that no chain could bind him, that he's been chained hand and foot, that, that, that people have tried to, uh, the word here, subdue him. The word that's used there is a word that's used, perhaps better translated, tame. It's a word that's used for animals. They've tried to tame him. They've tried to subdue him. They've chained him hand and foot, and yet... Chains won't hold him. That night and day among the tombs in the hills, he would cry out this shrieking cry and he would cut himself with stones. He was engaged in self-harm. That, that we hear this man's plight and we're supposed to be deeply moved, grieved by what evil has done to this man. That he is alienated from God 
that he is alienated from people, that he's alienated from himself. And in that sense, he's an extreme case of the human condition, alienated from God, alienated from others, alienated from ourselves, that there's some sense in which we're actually supposed to see ourselves in the plight of this man, to see others in the reality of a person who is alienated from God, from others, and from themselves. And we pick up the story in verse 6. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and he fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want from me, Jesus, son of God, son of the most high God? In God's name, do not torture me. For Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him his name. What's your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. So here's this guy, Jesus and his, and his disciples pull the boat up to the shore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This man who's living among the caves, among the tombs, sees him and begins to run towards Jesus and he throws himself down before him. This, this man recognizes who Jesus is. That's part of the irony in the way that Mark tells the story and, and multiple stories throughout the Gospel of Mark where, where Jesus encounters someone who's been demonized, that the demon recognizes who Jesus is. And part of the whole point of the story is the readers are supposed to go, who is this man? And time and time again, the characters in the story who ought to get it, miss it. The religious leaders, miss it. The disciples, time and again, miss it. But the demon gets it. He recognizes who this is. And he comes and he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he he pleads with him. and, And then Jesus speaks to him. And says, what is your name? Now, it's not quite clear in this moment, is Jesus talking to the demon? Is he talking to the man? Right? Is, he, is he asking the demon his name? And, and there's the, the belief that to, to have the name of the other puts you in some sort of advantage. And yet, clearly, this man understands the disadvantage. The demon recognizes the disadvantage that he's in with Jesus, the son of the most high God. Or is it that Jesus is speaking to the man whose, whose humanity is still down in there somewhere? What? What's your name? While it's not quite true exactly what Jesus is doing by asking the question, the answer is tragic because the demon speaks. The man's humanity is so buried deep down in there that the demon has has taken over and the demon replies to Jesus' question, my name is Legion for we are many. A legion was the largest group in the Roman army comprised of 6,000 Roman soldiers that made up a legion. Now, I don't think that the the meaning of that is to convey necessarily that there are 6,000 demons, but as the text says, but that there are many. And perhaps the deeper meaning is the reality that in this man's soul, there is a battle, there is a a war, that these, uh, these soldiers, this legion, is fighting within him and dominating him in the same way that the legion of Roman soldiers dominated that region. You think about it, the, the, the original hearers back in Rome, the struggling church that Mark is writing to, may have heard in this response something that resonated with them about 
their oppressors, the Roman soldiers who were part of the persecution that they were experiencing and that behind them, they were animated by evil itself. This man says, I am, we are, I am legion for we are many. This desperate battle taking place inside of his soul. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. That's sort of perplexing, isn't it? Something about living on the hills near the, the, the lake that these demons liked, apparently. So they begged Jesus, and that's an important little word. You might want to mark it because that word begged shows up several times in the story. It's a key word in the story that we have to pay attention to. They begged Jesus not to send them away, and Jesus accommodates them. Isn't that interesting? They beg Jesus, and Jesus says, okay, pick up the story, verse 11. A large herd of pigs was, was feeding on the hillside. I told you this was a weird story, right? A large uh, herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake, and were drowned. I've been to the historical location where this event took place. It's a steep hillside that goes right down into the lake. These impure spirits enter into the pigs, and the pigs start to go wild, and all of them headlong down into the water and drown. Imagine the commotion. Imagine the scene. Now, we hear that story, and we think, oh, those poor pigs. Because right? as much as we might like bacon, pigs are cute, Right? first century world, they wouldn't have thought that way at all. Right? Pigs were thought of as, as horrible, as, as, as unclean. And, and there were several, again, resonances for the original hearers of this story when they hear about this herd of 2,000 pigs. First would be a religious connotation. You say 2,000 pigs. Why that many pigs for this region of villages? Well, pigs would actually be used in pagan religion, pagan sacrifices. They would sacrifice the pig to the pagan gods. And so these pigs were designated for a religious purpose. But there's a second kind of layer to this, a second resonance or connotation, and that's a commercial one. Then what would happen is they would take the pigs, they would offer them as part of their pagan rituals, but what was left, they would take to the marketplace to sell. That the pigs were an important commodity supporting the economy of that community. I, for the, um, just to sort of check it out, went and looked at the cost of a pig today. If you were to buy a whole pig processed and prepared, it costs you $750 for a whole pig. That means in today's money, this is $1.5 million worth of pigs that just went and drowned in the lake. Now think about the economic impact on that community there on the side of the lake. There's a, a religious connotation, there's a commercial connotation, but there's also a military connotation. Because again, th th to have 2,000 pigs for this particular reason really doesn't make a whole lot of sense except for the fact that you have in that area a garrison of Roman soldiers. And the pigs likely would have been in part there to provide for these soldiers, and the emblem, the symbol that was used to signify that group of Roman soldiers in that region was a wild boar. 
And so there's a military connotation. In fact, some of the language that Mark uses, some of the language he chooses, has distinct military kind of ring to it. And again, I can't help but wonder how this might resonate with the struggling church back in Rome who hears this story and thinks about the forces of evil animating those who are persecuting the church. 2,000 pigs that drown in the Sea of Galilee. Verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this to the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. And when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. This paragraph begins with reference to the, those who were tending the pigs. Rough day for those guys, huh? Right? Imagine this. We gotta now go back and tell the boss. $1.5 million worth of pigs. You're not gonna believe this. Just went running down into the lake and drowned. Rough day to be the pig watchers. But they go back and they tell, they begin to tell people what happened. And, and everybody is, is perplexed because everybody knows this guy. This is the guy that, that lives out there among the tombs. This is the guy who cries out day and night, who, who goes around naked, who, who cuts himself. And you're saying, that guy? And so they all come to see what's going on. And I love the depiction of that guy. It says, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind. That he's had this encounter with Jesus. That, that his life has been transformed. That he's now sitting at Jesus' feet, the posture of a disciple. That, that he's now clothed. And we're left sort of asking the question, how did that happen? Is it possible that Jesus took off his robe and clothed the man himself? He's clothed and he's in his right mind. He is healed. He is restored. It's interesting, our, our word that we use that often is translated as saved or salvation is the same word that in other contexts is translated as healed because both of these ideas go together. Our healing is our salvation. Our salvation is our healing. This man has been healed. This man has been saved. This man tells us that nobody is too far gone for Jesus because if this guy's not too far gone, then nobody's too far gone. He's seated and dressed and in his right mind. And they were, probably a better translation would be terrified. Because they were scared of this guy to begin with. But now they're even more scared of the guy that couldn't heal that guy. They're terrified of what that power implies. And they want nothing to do with it. And they ask him to leave. They're afraid of Jesus. They're afraid of Jesus' power. They're afraid of what Jesus being present may mean for their lives. I mean, he's just had a very significant economic impact on the whole region, right? And uh, whenever we read stories like this, we're supposed to look for who do we identify with in the story? There, there's some sense in which we're supposed to identify with the man who's been healed and, and, and saved, that, that in some sense we're supposed to identify with the disciples who are watching this whole thing take place. But I think there's also a sense in which we have to identify with the townspeople. Because I think there's oftentimes this reality 
that we kind of say, Jesus, don't mess with my pigs, please. Right? That, 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 that we don't really want the cost of what having Jesus in our lives might really mean for us in terms of what it would require of us to change. Don't mess with my pigs, thank you very much. We want our circumstances to change, but we don't want to have to be changed in the process. And so they resist Jesus, go away. And so we see that word again, they, they begged him, they, they pleaded with him to leave. And once again, they beg him and he accommodates them. Jesus leaves. So he made the trip all the way across the sea and had this encounter with one guy and now he's going back. Verse 18, as Jesus was getting in the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Now, did you catch our key word again? He begged him, Jesus, let me go with you. Jesus, let me be your disciple. Let me, let me learn from you. Let me follow you. Let me be with you and, and become like you and carry on your work in the world. Jesus, please, let me go with you. And it's interesting because the demons beg Jesus. And he says, yes. The people beg Jesus. And he says, Yes, the, the man begs Jesus. And he says, no. You have to think, what's that guy feeling in this moment? Why is, why is Jesus saying no? Jesus, I wanna go with you. I, I wanna be with you. I mean, you, you, the demons asked you and you said yes. You're gonna say no to me. And I wonder if, if any of you have ever had one of those kind of prayers that you ask God to do something and, and it didn't happen. There was perhaps a door that was closed to you that you wanted open. And you're not quite sure why, why God did you, did you close the door? Why, why God did you say no? And you can't help but wonder the, the reason. And is there more to the story? And I have to imagine that in the days and weeks and months, maybe even years after this event, that man wondered, why did Jesus say no? And yet, there is, in fact, more to the story. You see, it says here that this man did what Jesus told him to do. Jesus said, go and tell what the Lord has done for you. And, and make a special note here. Jesus says, go tell what the Lord has done for you. And Mark says, and the man went and told what Jesus had done for him. This is Mark's very subtle way of making his point. Jesus is Lord. Go tell what the Lord has done for you. And the man does it. He begins to tell in the Decapolis, this region of 10 cities on that side of the lake. He goes and begins to tell people. And Jesus shows up in the Decapolis several chapters later. In chapter 12 and 13, Jesus is there. And we're at... The first time that Jesus crosses the lake, there's one guy. When we see Jesus back in the Decapolis several chapters later, 4,000 people have gathered. 
And they spend three days with Jesus, and Jesus does his, his feeding miracle. He feeds the 4,000 there in the region of the Decapolis. 4,000 people that have gathered to listen to him for three days. And I have to imagine that this guy's in the front row with his notebook and pen taking notes, right? Because he wanted to go and be with Jesus and learn from Jesus. And now's his chance to be in the three-day seminar with Jesus. And he's taking all the notes that he can get. But how do we go from one guy to 4,000? Because that one guy told his story, told people what the Lord had done for him. We only get the 4,000 because it all starts with the one. Jesus has an encounter, one life at a time. That life is transformed, and then he goes and tells others, and they all come flocking to Jesus. And it's really interesting. It's important to note here. Jesus does something here in Mark 5 that he doesn't do anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. Every time Jesus does a miracle in the rest of the Gospel of Mark, what does Jesus do at the end? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Because on that side of the lake, on the Jewish side of the lake, Jesus doesn't want to draw a crowd because they've come to him because he's a miracle worker. He knows his mission is bigger than the miracles. His, his mission has come not just to, to heal some people or even to raise some people, that his mission has come to give his life for all the people, that, that all who trust in his sacrificial death and his resurrection from the dead, his triumph over sin and death, that all might have life, healing, salvation, forgiveness. And he doesn't want to draw a crowd merely because of the miracles. So again and again, he says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. But here, on this side of the lake, Jesus says, go tell your people. Go tell your people what the Lord has done for you. And I wonder this morning, who are your people? People in your life who need to hear the story of what the Lord has done for you. Friends, family members, coworkers, that barista that you see every Tuesday morning, other families in your kids' school, I, I don't know, but who are your people who need to hear your story of what the Lord has done for you? Now, friends, we come to the end of this story in just a couple of key observations for us. The first is just that recognition that if this man is not too far gone, nobody is too far gone. If there are prayers that you've given up praying, if there are people in your life that you've given up on, today the reminder, the challenge to you is nobody is too far gone. And for some of you, what you need to hear today is you are not too far gone. That Jesus can come into your life, that he can give you freedom and, and healing, that he, he can give you salvation today. And it comes to you as a free gift merely by trusting in what he has done for you. That nobody is too far gone for Jesus, including you. But for all of us who have experienced new life through Christ, who, who have trusted in him, that means, friends, that you have a story to tell of what the Lord has done for you. The challenge for you and me is tell your story. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for this powerful story of Jesus' encounter with one life, a life that is transformed, a life that, that demonstrates this truth that nobody is too far gone for you. And God, I pray for anybody who's here this morning who, who needs to hear that word for them, who needs to hear that healing and salvation and life change is possible for them today through Jesus, that he wants to do for you what he did for this man. And God, that they may reach out to you in faith and trust in what Christ has done for them. And God, for all of us, who've experienced your healing, saving work in our lives. God, that today we would think about that question, who are my people? That I need to tell my story of what the Lord has done. And God, that we would respond as is fitting for each of us to, to tell the story of your goodness, of your mercy in our lives. And now, Lord, in these moments of response, we just take this time to say thank you. And to ask you to lead us that our response today would be fitting for each of our individual lives. And so we offer this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new.